After half a century, some 8,000 episodes, and numerous tournament of champions, the American television game show Jeopardy decided to hold its definitive contest to determine its ultimate victor. The trial featured three accomplished champions, Ken Jennings, Brad Rutter, and James Halshauer. The selection of these three remains one of sports great scandals, right up there with the Czechoslovakian judge in Lillehammer. The three contenders were fine, having won more than 100 contests and $10.7 million between them. That's not bad, as far as humans go. Who should have been in the tournament? The first contestant most clearly deserved to be Phil Connors. Connors, initially a Pittsburgh weatherman stuck in a time loop, eventually attained the status of God. Not THE God, at least he didn't think so, but A God. And as a deity, not only did Connors know every answer in lakes and rivers, what is Mexico? What are the Finger Lakes? What is Titicaca? He knew the question before the answer was even given. What is the Rhone? The second contestant was godlike in its knowledge, Watson. The likely forerunner of HAL 9000, this question-answering computer system already beat both Jennings and Rudder in an exhibition match for a million dollars. Our Eurodollar realist and having no use for a pyramid of physical bills, Watson promptly set the money alight and was heard walking off stage saying, it's not about the money, it's about sending a message. The third contestant inhabits that shimmering space between reality and myth called legend, Clifford C. Clavin Jr. The part-time Boston area mailman and full-time bar patron appeared on Jeopardy in 1990, where he feasted on categories like a walrus in a bed of bivalve mollusks, which is the mammal's preferred food, you know. Civil servants, stamps from around the world, mothers and sons, beer, bar trivia, and celibacy. It is in the spirit of these latter three, as a legend, as a Eurodollar realist, as living through a monetary time loop, that Jeff Snyder confronts listener questions in a Jeopardy-style show in this, the 16th episode of Making Sense. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Making Sense. It's a special episode. You definitely want to listen to this one because the show is for you and it's about you. It's based on your questions. My name is Emil Kalinowski and of course this is a Eurodollar University production and joining me as always is Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. He's been referred to as the Yoda of the Eurodollar, but for our purposes today, he's going to be known as the Cliff Clavin of the Eurodollar because we're going to be doing a Jeopardy-style Eurodollar episode where we're going to be going through mailbag questions and we're going to do a 30-minute episode starting now and Jeff will have categories to pick from and we'll see what kind of score he can rack up by the end of the, sh- by the, end of the 30 minutes. So Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Emil. I'm looking forward to this. Let me tell you. <laughs> Most, yeah, no, nobody will be harmed after this show. So we've oh, got some there's good... There's a lot of pressure. You've started out putting me really under the gun here. I mean, compare me to Cliff Clavin, the most famous mailman of, of all time. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot to live up to. Not only the most famous mailman, but I think the best Jeopardy contestant in all time. I don't care about this show that they did this year, about the Jeopardy champions. That's a whole conspiracy on how he didn't get on this year. So, but... Yes. 
This who will ever forget his answer in Final Jeopardy? Who are three oh. people who have never been in my kitchen? We'll absolutely see. correct. Exactly right. That, that is, it was absolutely correct. And we'll see if you can answer the Final Jeopardy question today, as well as Cliff Clavin. Let us start. Let us start. Okay. Your, your five categories are inflation, central banks, financial institutions, measuring money, and potpourri. Where would you like to start, Jeff? Oh, I think we have to start with central banks. Central banks. Very well. Let me uh, set this up here. There it is. Central banks. Can you see that okay, Jeff? Yep, we're good. All right. We've got six questions. The 100, 200, 300, 400, $600 question. Which one would you like to go for first? Oh, we've got to go for 600. All right. Let's go to Austin Deerdorf. So this is a good question. Also, it's specifically about Germany, but it also applies to Japan and maybe one day to the United States. And the idea is the bond market is supposed to be sending us signals. But what happens if the central banks buy up all or almost all of the bonds? Can we really rely on the bond market anymore? Absolutely, because uh, central banks who buy bonds are just buying bonds according to a predetermined list. They're not buying bonds because of economic reasons or changes in the marketplace or changes in the, econ in the economy. They're doing so based on strict, bureaucratically determined rules and, and, and limitations. So the market that's, that's left, that's actually a market, will still be trading based upon market factors, economic factors, and the very kinds of things that we want to see happen. So it is possible, even under an environment where central banks are the biggest uh, owner out there, that you, the market just simply adjusts to the central what the central bank is doing, and you have to reinterpret the signals in that context. But at the margins, the market is still the market. Would you like to stay in the same category? Same category, 500. Kevin Kev Pin. Well, you can see the question there. He is, my understanding is that dollars from Fed printing sits as inert excess reserves. Yes. Does BLK and the other new policy programs, do they get excess reserves when they sell ETFs to the Fed or actual U.S. dollars that can circulate? Are these new policies by the Fed creating more volatile, more exciting money? Jeff. No, it's, the same, it's basically the same thing. And, and again, the, the Fed is only transacting with primary dealer banks, and that's the offset. So the, they give the dealers the, the reserves, and then the reserves go to the banks, who then go to the marketplace and buy what the, the Fed wants them to buy. So it's, it's still the same shell game. It's still the same puppet show, as I like to call it. And the end result is an increase in, in the level of bank reserves. And really, the, the, the whole point of these programs isn't – so much to increase the level of bank reserves as it is to reassure market participants that Jay Powell's got your back. Don't worry about, don't you ever think about selling an asset ever again because the Fed's got it all covered. That's really the whole point here. And if it, if it raises the level of bank reserves and some people interpret that as money printing, all the better because that plays into what the Fed really wants to see in a deflationary environment, which is an increase in inflation expectations. So that's as far as Jay Powell's concerned, it's, it's, it's good every, all the way around. Would you like to stay in the same category, Jeff? Let's go to a different category. Let's try potpourri. Potpourri it is. We've only got a couple of questions in here. 
That's okay. We'll whatever. Start with the first one. All right. Sounds good. Here it is. Potpourri. We've got three questions in this one, actually. And the first one comes from Lucas Roberts. Has Jeff read The Holy Grail of Macroeconomics by Richard Koo? And of course, if you haven't, I'm sure you've heard of at least the idea of the balance sheet recession. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've never read it. Um, I've never really been a big fan of Mr. Koo. And, and as far as um, balance sheet recession goes, I mean, that, that, that could have made sense up to about 2011 or 2012. But at some point, if we're talking about a balance sheet recession, if people understand what a balance sheet recession is, is that- I don't. Can you, uh, can you tell us what it is? It's basically the idea that the people, whether companies, uh, persons, you know, think about it in terms of the mortgage, or the housing bubble and the, and the mortgage uh, credit bubble that happened in the middle 2000s, people essentially take on too much debt. And therefore, there has to be a period of deleveraging whereby people work out their debts and get down to a, a level that's sustainable to their basic income. And in between, of course, you have what is called a balance sheet recession which some people thought that maybe 2008, 2009, the Great Recession, had been a balance sheet recession, and it made sense. We had a massive credit growth through the 90s and in the middle 2000s, and therefore it seemed like, okay, if we have a balance sheet recession, then we just have to work through this deleveraging process whereby after a couple of years, enough debt is extinguished, people get down to a, a, recent, a reasonable level of debt in their own lives, in their own, their own corporate situations, that the economy starts growing again. And in the balance sheet recession, it really look, kind of looks the same way where there's really not much a central bank can do because deleveraging is going to happen no matter what. Now, I think Ku's argument is more nuanced than that, and I'm oversimplifying a lot of the things here, but that's the basic gist of it, that once we got through this deleveraging process, that was it. You know, like, like a switch, everything would go back to normal. And of course, as you and I, Emil, we know this very well, that's not what happened. Uh, you could tell that was going to be the case right from the beginning because, first of all, 2011 and 2012, you had another liquidity event, which a liquidity event is inconsistent with the idea of a balance sheet recession. And then all your beautiful charts that you pre prepared, Emil, that show that 2008, 2009 wasn't a balance sheet recession. It was an inflection in credit and money. So it wasn't like this was a temporary setback where we deleveraged to a reasonable level. More so, it was a complete paradigm shift in the money and background, banking background behind the entire system. Tell me if I've got this right. So a balance sheet recession is there's, it's heavily focused on debt. There's too much debt. Okay, we, we reset, deleverage a little bit. But the liquidity is always there, right? To take off again. Is, is that what's missing from yeah, his? Yeah, it's, it's no? not that the banking system is missing money. It's that consumer, the, 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 um, the demand for credit uh, falls off because people are deleveraging. Companies are deleveraging, whatever it is. And so as long as that deleveraging goes on, it's really, you have to be along for the ride. But the other part about that is at some point, you have enough. Enough is enough. You get enough deleveraging and a thing turns around. Well, here we are in 2020. The thing never turned around. Is, is 13 years not enough time to deleverage? Well, of course not. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nonsensical argument. And it was, like I said, it was pretty obvious that wasn't the case all along because you had right away in 2010, we had these liquidity events popped up that were inconsistent with the idea of lack of demand for credit. It was about the supply of money. You saw that in May of 2000. I mean, right away, it was it was pretty obvious that this was a liquidity change, and um, especially after 2011, where it became 
it became even more uh, evident that there was a paradigm shift, not a temporary balance sheet deleveraging, but a paradigm shift underneath all that on the supply side in banking and credit. And then therefore, because of the lines of between credit and money have blurred so much, banks are money and credit simultaneously. Excellent. Excellent. Categories are inflation, central banks, financial institutions, measuring money, and potpourri. Where would you like Let's to go, go with next, inflation. Jeff? How about inflation? Let's do it. Would you like to go at the 100, 500, or in between? Let's go in between. Let's go to Yaha8544-1345 from Twitter. There it is. Jeff, how do you see negative supply shocks and deglobalization affecting inflation? while QE doesn't. This is kind of a uh, question that I see often on in the YouTube comment section is that you often say that inflation is a monetary phenomenon, but people say, well, what about supply shocks, deglobalization? Won't that inflect, affect inflation? But is it a persistent issue versus a transitory inflation moment? Yeah, that's, we're talking about inflation burst versus inflationary environment. An inflationary environment, which I think most people associate with inflation, is a monetary phenomenon. Whereas in a supply shock, these things happen all the time. In fact, I just wrote about the one that showed up in 1947 and 1948, which the Federal Reserve interpreted as a, as a switch out of the Great Depression deflationary environment and into an inflationary environment that they had been fearing since 1934. And of course, that wasn't the case. Even though the CPI got up into the double digits in 1947, and the Fed went nuts over that kind of a thing, it was not an inflationary, it was not to switch to an inflationary environment. It was a supply shock. It related to Europe coming back online, the Marshall Plan, the sudden burst of demand, despite the fact that we, the American economy in particular was still transitioning from wartime footing. And so you had this rapid spike in, in acceleration in consumer prices that was not monetary in nature, and therefore it was only short term. Because what happens when you have an, a, a supply shock is that eventually the market adjusts. That's what you would expect to happen. And so as the market adjusts, the, the temporary burst of inflation goes away. And in fact, that's exactly what we saw in the bond market in 47 and 48 was that long-term yields really didn't change that much. In fact, it was so small, the fact that the Fed overreacted to it, you just shake your head and wonder what the hell these guys are thinking. And of course, the, the truth is they don't understand money and banking so much as they understand bonds and yields and their relationship to them. But the point is that, yes, yeah, supply shocks happen all the time. The market adjusts to them. It can, really, it can, really, uh, it can end up um, creating a temporary burst of inflation, sometimes very severe burst of inflation. But that's not the same as a monetary or inflationary environment that's, that's based upon or that's predicated upon monetary imbalances. Jeff, we're coming up on our break. And before we get there, we still have room for one more question. So where would you like to go? Same category. Let's go for the next one. All right. This next one is coming from Twitter as well, at Dennis Cutman. And if the U.S. really wants to create inflation to counter the current deflation, how can the Fed and the government incentivize the banks to make loans, which creates new credits? I really like this uh, the angle we're going here with Dennis. He's asking not how the government or the Fed can create inflation, it's how do we get the banks to do it for them? Yeah, and it's how do you get the Fed and the government to get the banks to do it for them? Mm -hmm. And that's really what the central banks have been trying to do for the last 13 years. 
And obviously it hasn't worked. And then look, I mean, the central banks have, in their mind, they've tried everything. Um, negative interest rates. What is negative interest rates? Negative interest rates are essentially a penalty to the banking system for not creating the monetary money and credit that would lead to inflation. And so in Europe, Japan, and all these other places, central banks have been trying to prod and harm the banking system and say, hey, look, I'm going to penalize you unless you do something with, the, with your balance sheet. Start doing something risky to create the positive forces that we believe lead to inflation. And what have the banks said? Ah, we'll just pay the penalty and, and do the same stuff we're always doing, which was retreat, get smaller, get more efficient, those kinds of things that are deflationary. So obviously, after 13 years, central banks and government haven't been able to put their finger on what exactly would be the right way to get the banking system to behave in an inflationary manner. So that doesn't leave us a whole lot of options. And it's, it's really the big question out there is how do we, how do we turn this thing around? And I don't think the answer is what, you know, some simple policy or a combination of policies under the current paradigm. I think it has to be, you know, even in, even in terms of orthodox economics, it's, a, it's about credibility. Does, does central banks or do central banks and government have the credibility to convince the banking system that they should go out and take lots of risks again? And I don't think they do. And I don't think there's any way to change that except by changing the entire system itself. I think the system, the monetary system in particular, needs to be reformed in a way that it, it can be stable and, and stable in such a way that the banking system sees that it's stable and therefore reacts to that rather than these this continual circus of one parade of QE or one thing, you know, NERP, whatever it is, one thing after another that everybody knows, at least everybody inside the banking system knows, isn't going to work no matter how much it's sold to the public. So the answer is, okay, if we're going to continue with the banking system, then we need a credible monetary environment that allows them to take risks again, which I don't think is the right way to go either because we really don't want to go back to the middle 2000s. That wasn't very good. That wasn't a really good uh, period either. And then the other option is to have a monetary system that isn't bank-centered. And then you're, now you're talking about a much bigger project than you know, just a simple policy or two. So there is no easy answer here, which is my way of saying <laughs> there's a lack of an answer. Uh, the judges are going to have a real difficult time scoring that answer. On the one hand, it's correct. On the other hand, it's not an answer, but maybe that's it's the answer. It's a Cliff Clavin answer. I think I just clavened it. Jeff, you were talk it's going to take a big project. Let's talk a little bit about you. This is what Alex does every time after the break. He comes back. He asks the uh, what their favorite you know, uh, 4th of July food is. Is it hot dog? Is it hamburger? Jeff, why are we doing this show? What do you envision project-wise, that this show and this wider effort will become? Well, the podcast, the Eurodollar University Making Sense, was, first of all, to get to, to get to partner with somebody like you, who was actually very good and relatable, as opposed to me, who is uh, somewhat more of a, uh, uh, maybe a little bit harder to listen to at times. So that's number one, is what we're trying to do together is to, to get people interested in the topic. And the idea is, look, there's something wrong with the system. There's something wrong, with, especially with the banking and monetary system. Central banks don't have any answers. And by the way, they know that it's on some level. But that's the whole point behind expectations policy. So we want to get people interested in the ideas and the topics and raise all of these issues that people can then try to interpret their own understanding, their own way of understanding the world. But this is also just an introduction into what we hope will be 
a much larger scale project where we actually supply more of the answers and more of the, um, the research, the background, tell you where to go to find information, all these kinds of things. You know, how do you read the tick data? What does it tell you? Why does it tell you these things? What is the history? So this is an introduction into what we hope will be get people interested in a much larger world, which is this euro dollar global money system that has existed for half a century, but has, has been completely unexplored basically the entire time. It's, yeah, well, it's been unexplored, especially recently. That's what I always bring up is that it, there was knowledge, there was focus, there was interest. And then in the 80s, meh, but that's for another show because we've got 13 minutes left in this Jeopardy session. Oh. Uh, Jeff, the categories, inflation, central banks, financial institutions, measuring money, potpourri. Let's do measuring money. We've got three questions here, 100, 200, 300. Which one would you like to go for? 300? I think so. All right. It's from Cisco S, the Divisia data right. series. It's, I think it's really only predominantly used in the United Kingdom, although other countries measure it, but maybe they don't report it. But this Divisia data series makes more intuitive sense to Cisco S as compared to the current monetary aggregates that we, you know, we think of as M1, M2, M3, M4. Do you have an opinion on this data series? This particular data series, I don't know enough about it to render a, a technical opinion. What I will say is that I do like the idea behind, um, it's not just the, the, the UK, there's also the Japanese, for example, which is so ironic. But the Japanese, for example, have, have, have tried to put together much higher level monetary aggregates too. So I, I like the idea that the official government, central banks in some places around the world are at least exploring the idea that okay, number one, we can't really accurately measure money because of what Greenspan called the proliferation of financial products. So number two, maybe that's an important thing we should do. But here's the problem with number three. Nobody has yet, to my knowledge, actually defined that proliferation of products so that you can properly categorize, say, an M4 and M5 or something like that. I don't think we've gotten to that point where we can put enough into these boxes and say, we've got it covered. We've got all of the monetary, all those, the, uh, the proliferation of financial products, we've got them all into our universally comprehensive M5. And then the problem with that, even if you do that, even if you do get say a Divisio or M5 that does, that does categorize properly everything that's happened today, it's obsolete tomorrow or next week or next month or next year because that's what the euro dollar system has really, really teaches you is that money is not a static concept. And really, if you go back and look at the history of money, especially since the 19th, 18th and 19th century, that's what you really find is that it changes form time and time and time and time again. It doesn't stand still. The euro dollar system as it is today is nothing like what it was in the 50s. Hell, it was nothing like it what it was uh, 15, 13 years ago when it started breaking down. So, you know, that's another problem. As soon as you get, I've got M5, we got it, yay, we're done. You gotta start with M6 tomorrow. Um, and so I don't know, in this kind of environment, you know, the system that we have now, that, 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 that this kind of a project can be successful, can be fully comprehensive in, a, in the way that we want it to be. And of course, that goes back to what we just said before, which is maybe we need to change the system so that we have a stabilized, more 
transparent, open, and I don't want to say rigid, but at least somewhat more of, an, uh, of, uh, of a measurable kind of monetary system. But you know what? I think it can be done if, we, if our goal isn't perfect comprehensiveness. If we have a really great estimate and we have curiosity by our central banks who are continually investigating and looking for new developments, I think that would be a well, that would be light years ahead of where we are now. Move. It's a worthwhile idea. I, I grant you that. I just wonder. I don't think it. I don't think it leads to where many people would think, which is to go back to the old M one M zero days, where you could say money supply is, is X, therefore monetary policy is X times you know five percent growth. You know, I don't think you can get into that kind of precision. And we already talked. I mean, the li- the blurring of the lines between money and credit have made it very difficult to tell what is a loan, what is a credit, what is you know repo collateral is a perfect example. Is it money? Is it is it loan? Is it credit? Is it debt? Is it you know it's it's both. It's everything. And so it's very difficult to tie all these concepts together in the system we have. And that, again, maybe that leads us to the answer of we got to scrap this and go back to something that's much more simple, not necessarily rigid, but simple. Jeff, you have been avoiding financial institutions. I'm going to pull an audible and I'm going to force you to go to financial institutions. You've got one or two questions here. Which one would you like? Let's do them both. All right, let's do it. Back the first to back. one is from Usper Krefus, also known as, known as Ivan. What can banks theoretically do or buy with reserves? What are they doing with reserves nowadays anyway? What they, they can do anything with reserves. Reserves are basically a liquid monetary asset that's on the balance sheet. Monetary, at least according to the definitions of conventional accounting. What they're, what they're doing with those reserves is absolutely nothing. You're basically sitting there uh, in place of what used to be deposit liabilities or wholesale, uh, wholesale um, interbank liabilities, any number of things. So essentially, it's an asset for the bank. It's a liability for the central bank, and it's basically one, one swaps for the other. Uh, the, the bank used to have an asset, a monetary earning asset, and they've swapped it for these bank reserves that are, I guess, technically an earning asset because the Fed does pay IOER which is down next to nothing now. But again, our override, it gets back into the discussion we just had about NERB. Banks are, despite penalties, despite low rates, despite low incentives to hold these kinds of assets, they're choosing to hold the safest, most liquid assets, of which these are one, because their view of the environment, their view of their own balance sheet construction factors is negative. And there's nothing that has been done over the last 13 years that has changed the situation. They've decided they're going to hoard the safest, most liquid instruments, including bank reserves, because of what? What's the answer? To, why, would, why would banks hoard the safest, most liquid? I mean, that's the question that central bankers and governments and, and financial media never seem to ask or answer. And the answer to me is pretty obvious. <laughs> so, Yeah, no liquidity, too much risk. No exactly. backstop. You can't count on your central bank. I mean, did I... No. Am I right on any of those? Yep. And so if the central bank wants to give you a liquid asset for you to hold instead of, say, a treasury bill or something else, you know, even a mortgage box, I mean, you hold that instead. If there was any reason or incentive for them to do anything more, they would do it. I mean, look, the IOER, especially nowadays, is nothing. So why would you get paid essentially, you know, 25 basis points holding this liquid asset when you could 
you could go and, and get some, you know, lend in, in the, some market and, and get some risky returns for, for much more than that. Why don't banks do that? To ask the question is to answer the question. Absolutely. Next question is from Super FL. This is probably the hardest question here. So Jeff, you have mentioned that interbank credit creation satisfies all the currency functions. And I'm thinking there are the three classic currency functions that might be referenced here. Yeah, I don't think I've said that though. I want to. No. I want to. I want to object to the question. No, no I think problem. In, in terms of, of what I've said about the euro dollar system, is that it only performs to two. Uh, I've. I Which think. Two? I don't. Maybe I haven't been clear enough, but it does not. It's not a store of value. It's not. It's not the function. The euro dollar was always about medium of exchange and as a byproduct of measuring things, but it was never about. In fact, it was the, the whole point was that it wouldn't be about store of value because. You're not storing currency. You're not storing gold. There's no money in it. It's it's just ledger. It's just it's it's just a, the system that allows transactions to take place uh, uh, between very different systems. So it's a medium of exchange. It's, it's literally a medium of exchange, and as a byproduct, again, as as a byproduct, it has become a, a tool of measurement, not even a, a, a good one. But I don't think it's ever been a store of value, nor was it ever intended to be a store of value. Uh, you can make the case, I suppose, that governments have been using their foreign reserves that they've they've taken in from the euro dollar system as their own store of value. But even then, I would argue against that because they don't understand that it's actually not uh, not reserves as they understand them. It's simply a byproduct of being stuck with a huge dollar short uh, need. So it's it's fascinating if you think about it because we're all taught that there are those three aspects of the. Um of currency, what are they, store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account, but here we go. Right. We can run an entire planet's economy on just two of them. Right, and that, you know, think about the financial system as a whole, as it evolves, banking system in particular, especially since the, the Great Depression, it has solved, well, solved, it has tried to solve the store of value functions in other ways. So if we have, if we've separated our medium of exchange, that's one of the reasons why credit and the lines between credit and money have blurred so much is because credit has become almost exclusively the long-term store of value or the intermediate-term store of value where money used to perform that sort of role, especially where credit be itself becomes highly liquid. So that's one of the reasons why credit markets have developed for even the most esoteric products because banking system realized that if we could you know, money and banking, we tie those things closely. If we could make credit products very liquid, that will take over some of the role of store of value or some of the, the demand for store of value from what is a quasi semi-monetary is issue or product. And so that made things incredibly much more efficient in one sense, much simpler because if the Euro dollar system didn't have to worry about value, which is why it was breaking free of the gold standard, then you know, in a lot of ways, it becomes a lot more elegant and doable. Inflation, central banks, financial institutions, we've crossed out. We've got that. So inflation, central banks, measuring money, and potpourri. Your last question, Jeff. Let's go back to central banks. Got to oh. do it. Let's go to Nick T. How about that? Okay. Would he, Jeff, would Jeff have been in favor of the Fed actively intervening in the money supply to smooth out economic cycles. Jeff, because you always say they're not doing it right. Well, would you even be in favor of them doing it if they had known what they were doing? 
And then it's kind of a follow-up. What about letting the markets just take care of everything on their own, the natural order? No, I'm not in favor of using money, money supply for any reason other than supplying money. That's, that's the whole point. I don't think that economists should be in the business of managing economies. I don't think they do it well. I don't think you can do it well. I think the entire point of a central bank should be the old mechanical style central bank where when the, when the, when the global marketplace or the, even the local marketplace desires more currency to do normal functions, and it's not up to the central bank to decide what's normal, what's abnormal. When there's demand for money and there's a shortage of money, then the central bank needs to step in and supply it. And you think back, you know, to the old weather vane that's, that, that's, that goes right into the, um, to the boardroom of the Bank of England. And the reason why there was a weather vane in the middle of the boardroom of the Bank of England was because when the winds, the prevailing winds shifted, central bankers, and we're talking about, you know, late, eight, I think late 18th century, early 19th century when it was installed. The reason they had it installed was because when the prevailing winds shifted, that meant the vast English trade fleet was going to show up in, in harbor at London. Uh, they're going to, you know, sail up the Thames River and start and start docking and unloading their cargo, which meant that seasonally there was going to be tremendous demand for currency as those ships came in. If there wasn't currency, then you'd have all sorts of economic issues, real economic issues in terms of pricing, inability to sell, deflation because cargoes would have to be discounted because there was a shortage of currency, all those kinds of – that's what central banks need to be able to do, to be able to supply money when there's legitimate demand for it not be in the business of deciding what's legitimate demand, what's not legitimate demand, what is too much growth, what is too little growth. Economists, you know, that kind, that kind of central top-down structure has never worked. It's not working now for various reasons. And so, no, I'm not in favor of doing anything like that. I think the central bank needs to understand that it has a limited role, needs to be shrunken back into that role, and hopefully by doing so will make it a more competent institution in the one thing that it should be doing, not all of the things that it doesn't do really, really horribly. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff, this is final jeopardy. How much, oh. how many Euro dollars would you like to wager? Well, since they're theoretically infinite, can I, can I wager an infinite amount? Because my balance sheet isn't constrained right now. I mean, I don't <laughs> have any of those kinds of problems. I've, I've, got, I've got central banking or central backing from Emil Kalinowski and the Cayman Islands, so I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll wager an infinite, infinite amount. I'm, I'm uh, worried. If you get the answer correct, then how do we pay you two infinites, right? And then if you get it wrong, what is, does it all go to zero? It's very confusing when you wager infinite money. No, actually, there's there's actually infinity is a um, a variable. It's a graded a graded term because there are larger infinities than other infinities. So if we start with one infinity, we can get to bigger infinities. Jeff, I'm not. I know this is not euro dollar related, but I'm not going to let you go because you've just wrinkled my brain. There are larger infinities. Give us yes, a, infinities a few are not minutes of infinitely. This. You know, it, infinity isn't the biggest. There are other. Some infinities are bigger than other infinities. <laughs> oh my God! Wow! Now everyone that's listening to this show, you've got to come back at least for the next episode. One day we're going to explore this. Jeff just does this whole euro dollar thing as a hobby. He's really a physicist. No, that would be mathematics, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, it's it's come for the euro dollar, stay for the math lessons. All right, Jeff. You're waging infinite euro dollars, but you're not worried because there's more infinites. 
And yeah, here I'll is just your... wait for the central bank to do a bigger infinity of QE. So, <laughs> I mean, that should, that should fix everything, right? <laughs> here is the question. Well, here's the answer. And the question you have to supply. Archibald Leach, Bernard Schwartz, and Lucille Lesueur. Yeah, who are three people who have never been in my kitchen? That is absolutely correct. Congratulations, Jeff. <laughs> you are the Jeopardy champion. All Thank right. you. Thank you. It's such a great honor. <laughs> you know that I, uh, I went when I was uh, younger. I know it's hard to believe. I look very young, but it's just the filtering. Uh, when I was younger, I applied for a Jeopardy you know, appearance, and they, had it, they met at a mall. Kids don't know this, but they had malls back in the day, and you would go there. Anyway, so they had a lot of people go to the mall, and you would answer questions. And uh, I was very surprised, but uh, I never heard back. Am I not as smart as I think? How about you, Jeff? Did you ever, did you ever apply to be on Jeopardy? No, because I don't, I don't know. Equating Jeopardy with intelligence or you know, being smart, I, don't, I think that conflates things, too, because it's basically, you know, are you good at trivia? And that's a kind of a trivial pursuit to put it in another direction. So I wouldn't be too broken up about something like that. It's entertaining, no, no question, but I, I prefer more serious uh, scholarships and study than uh, you know trivial uh, stuff like that. Outstanding, Jeff. I will talk to you again next week. I hope you enjoy Fourth of July, and uh, thank you again for participating. Yes, now that uh, maybe next time you'll, you'll, you'll have to, uh, we'll, we'll design the, the program so that you can unseat me and take over as a Eurodollar champion. I just want to be either Alex Trebek or I'd like to institute some sort of Vanna White-like role for Jeopardy. Okay, uh, I guess that's where we're going with this. <laughs>